Y'all ready for this? Okay, still figuring it out for a few, that's okay. Uh, I want you to get in your Bibles and get ready. We're going to turn to the book of Ephesians. We're going to continue this uh, short three-week series on the last part of the longest sentence in the whole letter of the, of the church to Ephesus, at the church to Ephesus that Paul wrote to them. Uh, in fact, the, the beginning of that sentence starts in verse 3, and it goes all the way through verse 14. So next week, we'll finish up the last two verses. This week, our two verses we're going to focus on is Ephesians 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 11 through 12. So just get ready to sit in on this. It's not going to be all that uh, new to you, but I think that the Lord is going to work in us today in order to help us rethink a few things about our lives. In fact, if I might, let me just begin by praying for us right now, and then we will uh, look through this text after we kind of introduce it a little bit further. So let's pray together, and as I go through this, be praying as the Lord puts it in your heart to that you would just respond in obedience to whatever it is he presses upon you from his word today. Let me pray for us. Father, you are good always. Lord, you are so loving and giving toward us, even in things that we will never know about this side of eternity. So we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds today, that we might be impacted by your word through the powerful working of your Holy Spirit in us. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us the ability to respond to you in obedience immediately. Lord, give us a heart that desires you above all things. Give us a heart that wants what you want, and give us understanding to know what that is, that we may work to be obedient and to do whatever it is you've laid out for us to do in response to your word this morning. God, I thank you for this faith family, and I thank you for the opportunity for us to look into your word that we might know you and love you because you first loved us in Christ. Lord, help us this morning. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen. This series is talking about freedom. We talked about last week about finding your freedom, uh, finding that in the way that you come to Jesus and you can be set free from all the things that can so easily entangle you, that can so easily distract you from what you were made for. And this week we're going to carry that on out by talking about the fact that you've been made an heir. Now many of us have ideas about what it means to be made an heir I want to talk about that for just a couple of minutes because I want you to go back into your mind when you were growing up and how you understood what it meant to get success in your life or to get the things you wanted. What were, what were the goals that you had? What were the dreams that you had? Many of those probably did not come to fruition, but I want you to think back to some of those things. Like Think back to when you first remember somebody asking you what you, you wanted to be when you grew up. Think back to remember what it was that you responded with when people asked you what were your biggest goals the first time you ever thought through that process. I know for many of us it might be things like I want to be an astronaut or I wanted to be a pilot or I wanted to be a nurse or a doctor and some of us just wanted to win the next baseball game or the Atari game or whatever it was that you grew up with, right? Many of us don't even remember what those things were way back then, but you do know that you have some dreams now. In fact, you've got dreams, whether you recognize them or think about them very much because you shoot for them regularly by what you do. And I think the the ones that are the most encompassing are the ones that we don't even think about, that are just kind of innate to us, the the dreams that we, we just kind of have this idea in our heads that there's something we want that we need, and we are on the path to accomplishing those goals. And oftentimes, we either, one, never really get there, or two... When we get there, it never really satisfies us, and so we think we need a little bit more. Now, we've talked about this over and over in many ways, but what I want to do is take us to a place today in the Scriptures where we find that God really wants more for you than you can ever imagine 
in yourself. God wants more for you than you could ever set forth to want from him. God wants more for you than you could ever hope for or strive to attain. God wants more for you than, than you could ever, ever possibly put together in your own thought processes of setting goals and accomplishing tasks. Now, if you're not careful, this could sound like a prosperity gospel intro, right? And that is not what this is. God is not there to be the magic genie that gives you whatever you ask for. What I'm telling you is that God has a plan for you, and he has something that he wants to do for you, and he wants to give you more than you could ever imagine, but it's predicated upon understanding who he is and what he has done and what he has promised to do through his word. So let's look at his word and let the Lord speak to us out of the wealth of the reflection of his goodness as we see it here in the scriptures this morning. Now, this is a letter that a man named Paul wrote to a church in Ephesus, a church of believers that were, a lot of them were not Jewish in background, a lot of them were Gentiles, they were anything other than Jewish. Um, We also know that this letter was written so that he could encourage the church to be a healthy church. In fact, many would call this letter to the Ephesians uh, the great ecclesiological text, the text to know how to be a church. Okay, that's what many people look to this for. In fact, as we look through this first part, you'll see that it begins with adoration and worship of the one who loved us so much that he gave his only son for us, right? The whole thing, he begins in worship. So he starts off, look at verse 1, where he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he starts off after the salutation straight into worship. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now he starts to go through these. Even as he chose us in him, in Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Remembering this, that means that he chose us in Christ before the beginning so that we would be declared holy and righteous. And we are not holy and righteous and all good and all perfect. But because of the perfect work of Christ, living perfectly, dying for us in our place, we are declared righteous because Christ declares that upon us when we repent and believe in him. And so therefore, when we see there that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world so that we would be holy and blameless before him, he already had a way paved through Jesus for that to happen. In verse 5, we see that in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. In other words, that he determined before the foundation of the world that he would adopt us into his family because of his powerful working that out in Christ, his son, because we could never attain that status in our own right. That we are sinners, we are tainted with it, we are, we are rebels against how we are created, we're made to reflect his perfect goodness, his glory, but we fail miserably over and over again in doing that. In fact, many of us, most of the time, we don't even try to do that. We're just so self-absorbed in whatever we believe are the right goals here on this place that we aren't even thinking about the vertical, we're just thinking about the horizontal. And so we see that in love, because he loved us, he determined ahead of time, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, not to make us into automatons, but so that he would set forth that it would be accomplished because he can make that happen. And he says that's according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Notice again all this passivity on our parts. It's God working on our behalf. This is where we jumped in last week, where we see verse 7 and on. In him, in the beloved, in Jesus, in him, we have redemption 
through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. In other words, he has purchased us out of our slavery to sin, that he's redeemed us, he set us free from that as he has forgiven us of our sins because of his sacrifice on the cross, that in our place he stood condemned so that we could be brought into the family of God free from sin and now given over to the one who loves us more than we can imagine. It says, that was according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, which we find out in a minute what that is, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. This is it, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In other words, that in Christ we would find our purpose, that in Christ we would find that all things are actually being reunited, not just united, but reunited, that all things, you know this, listen, all things in this world are falling apart around us. Everything in this world is not getting better as we would hope. Although technology seems to be improving, other things in the world are not. I mean, it's, not, it's something we used to do all the time growing up, going to spend the night with folks and just being out all hours in the neighborhood. You, you can't imagine not knowing where your children are. Or some of us don't even want our kids to spend the night with other people because we just can't trust people in general, right? I mean, we, we're worried about the things we see and we read because it seems like the world is falling apart. And honestly, it's because it is. Because everything was united in God in the beginning. And because of sin, it is being disintegrated and destroyed from the inside out because of sin and its effects on us and on our society and on the world. Everything is coming apart at the seams. And so here we see that in Christ, in verse 10, it says, the plan that God has for the fullness of time is to unite or reunite all things in Christ. That in him, when he becomes Lord over something, he then has power over that thing and he has become Lord over all things because of his victory on the cross in our place. Because he finished the work that had to be done for the sake of the Father. And now he is Lord over all things. And the more that's brought under his lordship over time, the more things are brought back together. That's why when you see revivals happen in history, you see that things happen more than just spiritually in someone's life. You see economic change in a community when a large revival takes place. You see, you see reconciliation in different groups, socioeconomic or ethnically. You see all kinds of changes for the good happen because under the lordship of Christ, he reunites all things. And that's what we're hoping for. That's what we're yearning for him to do here when he returns. But the greatness is we don't just have to wait till he returns. Look at verse 11. In him we have obtained, in Jesus we have obtained an inheritance. By the way, I don't really prefer that language. I know I'm not as smart as these guys that, that do their interpretation of Scripture. Uh, that word is actually where it says, in him we have obtained an inheritance have obtained an inheritance is actually one word in the Greek. And that word in the Greek is the same idea that's used in the Old Testament for casting lots, okay? So that it has been allotted to us by God's design. That's the idea, okay? It's a passive thing again. He says, in him we have obtained an inheritance. It's better understood, I think, is in Christ we've been allotted an inheritance. It's been given to us by God. In fact, commentators actually disagree over the interpretation. It's very, very possible that that actually is not even saying that we have received an inheritance as much as it's saying that we are God's inheritance, okay? And I know it kind of looks like so simple and plain in the English, but in the Greek it's not. And many commentators think that it's actually pointing to God and to us being his inheritance, that we are his portion. In fact, if you go to the Old Testament and read about the people that he had chosen to be his in the Old Testament, all you see all the time is that they are his allotted portion, that they are 
his inheritance in that way all through the scripture. So it makes a lot of sense. In fact, it's kind of the way I lean in this text. So let's look at it in that way again. You can see both sides are theologically true. Um, So we'll see both of them in a moment, but let's just see it in both ways now as we read it. In him we have been allotted an inheritance, or in him, in Christ, we have become God's portion. We've been made his for his inheritance. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In other words, that the way in which that's happened is because God chose before the foundation of the world that we would be his, that he determined that he would adopt us into his family before the foundation of the world according to the purpose of him, according to his purpose, not because of what we would do or not do when you read Romans 9, but because of his purpose, the purpose of him who works all things according to his own counsel, to the counsel of his will. In other words, he is sovereign over everything. Now, he allows things that we don't understand why he allows, and we don't have to understand because he is infinite and we are not. We know that he hates sin and death and destruction that has come about in this world so much so that he gave his one and only son to die for that. So he is not in favor of sin or death or disease or destruction, and he's overcoming that in Christ. But he uses all those things that are in this world for the sake of his will being fulfilled. So nothing can thwart his will. The enemy comes against him. No matter what he does, he doesn't thwart or change God's will being done. We see that here, purpose again, verse 11. In Jesus we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. Now, just real quick, in the text here, it looks what Paul's doing. It looks like what he's saying is he's saying that we who were the Jews who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. If you go on, he talks about those Gentiles he's speaking to, and he's kind of making the point that we were the first to hope in Jesus, but now you have too been brought into that family. It's not just Jews anymore, it's everybody. So we can take that to understand that all those who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now, I want to reiterate again what I want you to let sink into your heart this morning as we start to unpack all this. You think, start to, we've already done a lot, right? But I want you to understand that no matter what your plans are for you, no matter what you think you have in mind that is best for you, no matter what you think is best for your kids, for your grandkids, for your community, for your organization, God wants more for you than those things. And even if your mind is in the right place and your heart's in the right place and all those things, he still wants more for you than you can possibly understand. He wants more for you. He's infinitely wiser and more powerful, and he wants more for you. So let's break this down into a few pieces. I'm going to give you this in verse 11, but here's how I want to say it. God wants more for you, therefore, he's secured an inheritance for you in Jesus. He's secured an inheritance for you in Jesus. Verse 11, in him. Everything in here is about being in Christ, in God, in Christ, in God. In him, he has secured an inheritance. In him, we've been allotted an inheritance or we've obtained an inheritance. Not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done for us. We've obtained an inheritance. Listen, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 7 talks the same idea in inheritance. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again 
to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's pretty neat right there. Did you hear that? Kept in heaven for you. Too many of us think that our inheritance is a place called heaven. It is not. Our inheritance is kept in heaven for us. Because our inheritance is not heaven itself. We'll come back to that in a minute. Listen. To an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Do we, church? Do we rejoice in the fact that we have an inheritance that is greater than we can imagine? That God wants more for you than you could ever imagine? Do we really rejoice in that? He says, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. In other words, sometimes we go through things that seem like, what is God doing here? Why is he letting me go through this? It tests our faith. It refines our faith. And although he hates those things we have to go through, he allows it to go on so that we might know him better, love him more, and enjoy him more for the rest of eternity. We can't understand it now in our finiteness, in our sinfulness. But it has purpose. And he works all things according to the counsel of his will. Listen, let me tell you this. You could never do enough to earn it. So Jesus earned it for you on the cross. It's in him, right? You know this. If you've been in church at all, you've heard these words before. You can never do enough to keep it, so God has kept it for you in Christ. You don't have to worry about it. Listen, you don't have to worry about holding on to it, and if you don't hold on tight enough, you're going to fail and be without him. You don't have to worry about if you don't do good enough and if you don't excel enough in your life in all these ways that you're going to lose what's most important to you or should be most important to you, which is Jesus, because it's being kept for you, brothers and sisters. You can quit worrying about losing it because it's being held on to by the one who holds all things in his hand, and nobody can take it out. No one, the scriptures say. So don't be holding on to that in the sense of thinking if you let go for a moment that it's over because it's not up to you. And that's a good thing. That's a really good thing because we could never do enough. But he's done enough for us in Jesus because he wants more for you. Next, I want you to understand that God wants more for you so he chose you before the beginning. He chose you before the beginning And he works all things according to the counsel of his will. What does that mean? Look at that verse again. In him we've obtained an inheritance, been allotted an inheritance, or maybe even in him we've been made his inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, God, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God wants more for you, so he chose you before the beginning, and he works all things according to the counsel of his will. Look. God, listen to this, This if you don't get anything else out of today, I want you to hear this because I think a lot of us in this room need it right now. It's been a long few weeks for several people in our faith family, and a lot of those have been affected that love them and care for them. And And it's been a hard time. And I want you to hear this truth today, a lot of these truths that follow, I want you to listen and let it sink into your heart. Don't worry so much about memorizing something, let, let, the, let the truth sink in. Here's the here's statement I want you to hear. God loves you too much to leave it up to you. You understand? He loves you too much to leave it up to you. He works all things 
on panta in the Greek, right? It means all things, not just some of them, not most of them, except the ones that you want to hold on to. He is powerful over all things. It says very clearly that according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, to his wisdom, to his desires, to his authority, to his supremacy over all things. God loves you too much to leave it up to you. So don't enslave yourself to your circumstances. Jesus sets you free from that on the cross. If you're his, don't enslave yourself to your circumstances. God's love for you is greater than your circumstances. Don't, don't enslave yourself to, 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 don't enslave your hope to your abilities. Don't put your hope in what you can accomplish because he loves you more than that. He loves you more than, he loves you more than you can accomplish in your success or more than you can't accomplish in your failures. His love is greater than those things. Don't enslave yourself to hoping in your abilities. Hope in the one who can do all things and works all things according to his will. Amen? Put your hope in that one. Don't get enslaved to your circumstances. Don't put your hope in your abilities. And listen to this. Don't lose hope in the midst of suffering. Don't lose hope in the midst of suffering. God's love for you runs deeper than the depths of your suffering. You may not even know he's there in the worst and lowest points of your life. But when he brings you through enough to come up for air, you'll recognize it. And you'll see it. And you'll revel in the glory of it. Because he has made himself known to you in a way that you cannot express to others. It's a joy that's inexpressible, the scripture says. Don't enslave yourself the suffering or your own abilities or your circumstances, but give yourself over to the Lord. This is Romans 8, 16 through 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You see who's doing it again? You don't have to prove you're a child of God if you're his. The Spirit bears witness to you. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Suffering will come. It doesn't mean God loves you less. He actually wants more for you through that. And he allows it for a moment, but he's going to wipe it all away forever when the day comes that he returns. Put your hope in him. He's the one that's over all things and works all things to the counsel of his will. Genesis fifty twenty is a verse that you probably have heard before if you've been in church at all. It's the story of Joseph. And Joseph, uh, he was a guy that seemed to know a lot of things from the Lord, was chosen by God for some great things, and his brothers did not like him being the guy that was chosen in the family by his dad as being kind of the favorite. He had this beautiful coat. They got really mad at him. He would have dreams about them. They didn't like that. And so they sold him into slavery and told his dad he was dead and killed. And in his slavery... He was given over to a really great place. If you're going to be a slave, do it in one of the, the higher-ups' houses, right? The rich guys is in charge of a lot of stuff. Well, then that guy's wife tried to get him to, you know, do things that men and women shouldn't do if you're not married. And he got thrown in prison for it because she said he tried to rape her. And then he's in prison, and he's in there for a long time, and then he's pulled up out of that. And he's brought into a place of power. God's working. You know what happened with that? He brought him up in a place of power so that he could deliver his people. 
And when the people came to him, his own brothers who had thrown him into slavery and put him into a place where he was in prison and put him in a place where he was condemned for things he had not done and put him through all this suffering. Listen to what he says to them in that moment in Genesis 50, 20. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You see, Joseph had an insight that we don't often get. He knew why he went through that suffering. You and I may never know why we go through that suffering in its totality. We may get a glimpse of it now. We may get all of it when we get to eternity. We may not get all of it when we get to eternity. Because when we get there, we're not so concerned about figuring it all out, as many of us would like to think. We'll be so overwhelmed in the presence of the one that gave himself for us, that loves us more and wants more for us. We won't be worried about that anymore, I don't believe. Listen, Jesus endured suffering beyond measure so that he could save you for himself. Look, that's, that's, that's the deal. Do you, do you understand that your inheritance is not a place? Your inheritance is not even all the things of creation, which will be ours in Christ as her older brother has secured them and are all his and set under his feet as his footstool. Even though that will all be ours, that's not what our inheritance is. Our inheritance is actually God himself. We get to have him. We read throughout the Old Testament, I will be your God, you be my people, and I will walk among you. And in Revelation 21, when heaven comes to earth, it says God will be with you and will be your God and you will be his people. It's about having him. It's about having the one who loves you so much that he gave himself on the cross for you. That is our inheritance. And that's why it's kept in heaven for you now until it's sent back to get us. You understand? This is the glorious picture of all of this because God wants more for you than you can ever imagine. And we put ourselves in our hope in things that can never really satisfy. But God wants more for you, so he's chosen you as his portion. God wants more for you, so he's given you Jesus. He's given you the Christ, the one worth more than all of creation, so that you might be to the praise of his glory. Look at verse 11 and 12 again. In him, in Jesus, we have obtained or been given or allotted an inheritance or even so that God has made us his inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. We're going to hit more on this next week, but if you went back and looked in verse 6, verse 11, and verse 14, look at these things real quick. Verse 6, all this is being blessed God. All this is about giving God the glory Verse 6 says it again, although he's chosen us and predestined us for adoption, it's verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Look at verse 11 and 12, at the end of verse 12. So that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. You understand? All of this is being done so that we might be to the praise of his glory. Again, verse 12. So that we who are the first to hope in Christ, so that we might be to the praise of his glory. Again, we'll talk more about it next week, but let me just kind of do a spoiler here. This is the, the beautiful picture is this. What does it mean that we would be to the praise of his glory? It means that when we find our ultimate joy in him, when we actually understand that he is our inheritance and that he is more than we can ever want, that he is more than we can ever need, that he is more than we can ever ask for, when we finally endure those things and understand those things to the first degree level of trueness, 
of what it really means when we see him face to face, then we will speak out the glorious praise that he deserves. Because it's just like when you're in love with somebody and you're face to face with them, you don't really live in that joy until you express your love and adoration for that other person. You know what I'm talking about. In the midst of the most like, wonderful, loving moment in your lives, you, you verbalize those things to that person. And that's where you kind of overflow with the joy. And that's what it means here, that when we finally see that he wants more for us than we could ever imagine, that he's given us more than we could ever take in our own right, when he's given us Jesus, when we see that he's all that we ever need, all that we could ever want, when we see that we're not going back to the sin because we've been redeemed from it because of Christ, that he's a better gift, and we see that we don't have to give our heart to things that can never love us back because we have the one who's loved us so much that he would die for us and rise for us and give us victory over sin, death, hell, and Satan for us on our behalf so that we might be to the praise of his glory. We will sing his praises in his presence because it will overflow from us. So don't find your hope in things. Don't find your hope in people even that were never intended to save you. A person on this place can't give you the salvation you need. It can't give you the fulfillment. Nobody can. Nothing can. Put your hope in Jesus who loved you so much that he was willing to give everything so that you might be brought into his family. Because to him, to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you are their everything. That's the craziness. That for the joy that was set before him, the only thing he came to do that he did not already have in that moment was us. To win us back. To get us back. And so it was his joy to go to the cross and be broken in our place. It was the joy that was set before him to please the Father by bringing back his inheritance, his portion, allotted for his glory. That we might enjoy him and be known by him and know him. So put your hope in that one. Give yourself to the one who wants you so much that all you ever wanted, more than you could ever desire, that that one is Jesus himself. Last week we talked about come to Jesus and be set free. And Today I'm saying to you, Trust and believe that God wants more for you. Please don't give yourself over to other things or don't give your heart completely and its utmost to someone who can never fulfill you. Give your heart to them too, but first give your heart to the Lord and give your all for him. And find your joy in the one who's meant to be your joy for all eternity, Jesus Christ, the righteous redeemer, our servant savior. Put your hope in him today. Father, I thank you for what you've done for us in Christ. I know that we are unable in our own right to do anything other than love you because you first loved us. That we are not able to even love you enough, Lord. You have loved us so much that you have given us the ability to love you in spite of our sin. Lord, today there are people here who have not known you. There are people here who have never put their faith and hope in you. And today you have brought them to hear the gospel. It may be somebody in our midst that has been here for years has been under the teaching of the word for years, but for the first time today, you've awakened their spirit because you desire that they would be brought into your family because you loved them before the foundation of the world. So I pray, Lord, that as you awaken their mind, that you would give them the ability to repent and believe that they would turn to you, Lord, because they see how good and gracious and beautiful you are. Lord, you somehow work within our desires. I say, Lord, I beg, Lord, I beseech you to set them free that they may love you back because you first loved them in Jesus. And Lord, for the rest of us, as we continually put our hope and our hearts in other things, 
and we try to find our ultimate hope in our successes or in our careers or in our families or in our spouses or our kids or in whatever it is that might be that we put our hope in. Lord, free us from the bounds and the bonds of that, Lord. Don't let us be eclipsing your glory by satisfying ourselves on things that were never meant to satisfy and can never really satisfy. Let us see how you want more for us, and you've proven it by giving us the one who is worth more and who is greater than everything, and that's Jesus, your son. Let us turn back to him today for our joy and for your glory, and we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.